The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Each week on this podcast, we like to talk about M&A from a variety of different angles. We talk to Bloomberg reporters, we talk to outside guests, and I part of the goal of this podcast is to try to get at M&A from a variety of different angles. There are a lot of tentacles to M&A, and this week, we have a really interesting look at private equity, something we haven't talked about really a lot on this podcast yet, with a partner who's been in the business for a long time, Paul Levy. He's a partner at JLL Partners. He's going to talk about some of the investments he's made that have gone right, that have gone wrong, and even more than that, just looking at private equity broadly. Uh, I know there was a big discussion when Mitt Romney ran for president about whether or not private equity is an ex-societal benefit, you know, whether or not the positive externalities weigh out the negative externalities of people losing their jobs and firing. Paul has a very pointed opinion on this. But first, we get to our weekly segment, What's the Big Deal? And joining us this week... Paul Sweeney from Bloomberg Intelligence to talk about a broadcast TV love triangle. Paul, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. You are a media expert, certainly. Uh, can you help us figure out exactly when people hear broadcast TV, what exactly does that mean? So there are three companies in this deal, Meredith, Nextar, and Media General. I think the general public probably, unless they follow this industry, has never heard any of these companies. So what is it exactly that they do? Uh, these companies uh, own television stations. They own the local broadcast television stations around the country in a number of markets. So how television you know, in, in the U.S. gets distributed is, take the CBS network, for example. Um, they own the network, and they actually own some TV stations uh, around the country. But in markets where they don't own television stations, uh, they have locally owned affiliates that rebroadcast CBS programming in this example. So companies like Nextar, uh, like Meredith, like Media General, they own uh, local television stations, affiliates uh, around the country, and they are really the backbone of the local TV broadcast business in the U.S. So just so that I understand, in other words, like CBS or ABC or Fox or NBC, they own certain local TV stations, but they don't own all of the local TV stations that broadcast their programming. So how do they figure out which markets they want to own and which ones they want to let Nextar Media General own? Well, the big networks typically will own the biggest markets. Think New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. They want to be in the big markets. Those are the most valuable stations. Those are the most profitable stations. But there are over 200 uh, television markets in the United States, and so they don't want to be in the business of owning TV stations in every market in the United States. So what happened over the last, you know, really 60 years as television, broadcast television uh, developed in the U.S. is local owners um, – started building television stations in local markets such as Des Moines, Iowa, and, and other mar markets. Uh, and then they affiliated their stations with a particular network like ABC or, or CBS. And, and in that way, 
the big networks in New York could get their programming uh, aired across the country through this network of local affiliates. And that's what's you know, really developed over the last 60 or 70 years in the U.S., where the networks own the big market stations and other individual owners like a media general and a next star own uh, – TV stations and other markets around the country. All right, so let's get into this deal. Now, this is a very complicated one, so I'm going to try to go slowly here. But basically what happened is that four months ago, Media General, which operates stations, I think a lot of them are in the southeast United States, agreed to acquire Meredith, which owns other TV stations, and also, by the way, owns a magazine publishing business. I think they own Better Homes and Gardens and Family Circle and a couple other magazines. So that was a deal uh, for like $2 billion, $2-plus billion. Then Media General received an offer to be acquired itself by this other TV station, Nextar. And now we've had months of back and forth between Media General and Nextar. And basically what we found out earlier this week uh, was that Media General and Nextar finally reached an agreement where Nextar would buy Media General. But Media General already had this other deal with Meredith. And Meredith has basically said, we're not willing to let you out of that deal. So can you explain, Paul, sort of where we are now and where we're likely to go with this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great summary of the, what's going on here. It's, it's really interesting. We've got, you know, what we're really seeing here is in the local television business, um, you know, over the last several years is a, a wave of consolidation. A lot of these TV station groups want to get bigger. They want to own more TV stations. It's a good business. They want to own more of these TV stations. So we've seen a lot of consolidation in the local TV business over the last several years. And the media general assets, uh, their TV stations that they own are very attractive assets. And so they've really attracted the attention of, of, of two companies, Meredith and Nextar. Um, so what I think, but we, as you mentioned, you know, there is a deal signed for Meredith and, and uh, Media General to merge, yet Nextstar wants to get in there and buy the Media General stations as well. So we're really at a standstill here, and, and I think, you know, we've had Media General and Meredith negotiating to try to get out of the deal, and they haven't been able to agree on terms to uh, break up their deal, which would allow Nextstar to come in and buy Media General, which is probably the deal that investors want to see most. So, you know, we're probably going to have to wait and see what shareholders ultimately decide uh, several months down the road when they when they vote upon this Meredith Media General deal. So correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but this one strikes me as a really interesting situation. So what happened here was that Meredith and Media General reached a deal where actually uh, Media General was going to be the buyer, but Meredith right. yep. was was actually going to have their management team run the run the company. Nextstar yeah, said that while those two companies were negotiating, it lobbed in various different bids, as much as seventeen dollars a share uh, for Media General. They, by the way, the deal they ended up reaching the, earlier this week uh, or, or or last week was about seventeen dollars and sixty six cents, so a little bit higher than what the the highest price that they lobbed in. But anyways, Media General said no to Nextar, and yet what you're saying, Paul, is that shareholders are actually saying we would rather that deal happen. So even though the management of Media General didn't want to deal at $17 a share, the shareholders have sort of taken over here and said, wait a second, we want it, so I don't care what you want. At least at $17.66, we'd rather you do that. Was that a mistake on the Media General management's part? In, in, in other words, did they not have a read on what their shareholders wanted? 
Well, I think I think they do, but it, you know they also have a deal with Meredith, and the Meredith price is actually a little bit higher uh, than what Nexstar is. Is the new uh, offer you mean? So Meredith turned around and made a new offer, correct? Yeah, Meredith has been has been, you're exactly right. So Meredith has kind of been forced by Nexstar to up its offer, and I think their offer is now over eighteen dollars a share. So you know, and and that's the deal that Media General has you know kind of on the table. Um, and but if you look at the two deals, Nexstar's bid for Media General actually includes more cash and less stock than the Meredith deal. The Meredith deal doesn't have a lot of cash in in the offer price. It's more stock. So again, I think if you're Media General, you have a deal with Meredith. It's at a higher price. But you know, like any uh, company and any board, they have a fiduciary duty to kind of talk to anybody who wants to kind of come and, and and look at their company. So they're you know they're certainly encouraging you know both of these companies to make their final and best offers and things like that. But, you know, when you talk to investors, I think investors, when they look at the potential combinations, they prefer the Nexstar Media General combination because it, that would be a pure play television company, whereas the, the Meredith and Media General combination would still include a lot of Meredith's publishing businesses, their, their magazine business, which is seen as not as good a business as television. So, you know, investors are saying, gee, if I'm going to own a combined company here, I think I want to own the pure play combined television company. We think that's a better business long term. Last question, Paul. So how does this all end? Well, I think it's actually probably going to go to the shareholder vote, which is where, you know, it, you know in theory, it absolutely should go. The, the shareholders own these companies, uh, not the management team. So I think we're going to have a, a shareholder vote here. I, I, I'd be surprised if the media general Meredith deal uh, is approved by the shareholders. That will then allow Nexstar to come in, you know, and make its bid. And, you know, the shareholders will have a choice there to really uh, vote on uh, the bid that they think is best for shareholders long term. Very interesting. I mean, it sounds like, Paul, really, we don't know which company is going to end up with Media General. So uh, to be continued, maybe we will revisit this one uh, on a later episode of the podcast. Paul Sweeney from Bloomberg Intelligence, thanks for joining us. Okay, so we have a great guest today uh, to talk about the world of private equity. And to introduce him, I want to bring in our private equity reporter here at Bloomberg, David Carey. David, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. And uh, our guest is someone I've known a long time, Paul Levy, who is the founder and senior managing director of JLL Partners, which is a New York-based private equity firm. Paul founded uh, his firm in 1988, so it's in its 28th year, going into its 20th year, and has raised $4.2 billion across six investment funds during that time. And so we're going to talk with Paul about... uh, uh, just learn a little bit about him and uh, uh, what he does. So, Paul, why don't you uh, start off by telling us about JLL and what you guys do, and what is private equity all about? It's a, certainly a it's kind of a buzzword in the business press. People may not understand what private equity investors do. Thanks, David. It's good to be here. Uh, just for the record, we're probably up to about five billion at this point, and we've just finishing now raising our seventh fund. So well, we're excited about that. Uh, private equity uh, now means a lot of things uh, to many people, and I think what's noteworthy about private equity today is that when I started in the business, what it meant was pretty clear: people were buying companies to fix them, build them, and then exit them, meaning sell them. Uh, that's certainly still done today, but the scope of activities in private equity has become so large uh, 
that it's hard to put your finger on it. The, the largest firms, as I think you probably know, have uh, multi-lines of business, whether it's just buying companies, uh, adding to that arbitrage activities, distressed activities, real estate activities, money management activities, fund-to-fund activities. And so, uh, it means an awful lot. And uh, it's, it's very difficult to sort of pin it down. My, my practice of private equity has not changed, which is we, at JLL, we look to buy uh, fundamentally sound companies that have a problem at a point in time. And then we work to fix it, fix the problem, recruit good management if needed, uh, build the business, and uh, sort of transform the entity in the finished product. That's what we did at the beginning. At the beginning of our uh, experience, it was basically called restructuring workout. That is much more difficult nowadays, but today it's basically closer to a, a buy and build strategy. Uh, you've had a pretty varied career, an interesting career. You, Before you got into Wall Street, you were the CEO of Yves Saint Laurent. Yes. So why don't you tell us, uh, go back in time and tell us how you went from, uh, from that to breaking into Wall Street. Well, that was a remarkable experience because uh, uh, they were looking for, at Yves Saint Laurent, they were looking for a lawyer who spoke French and in particular knew nothing about the industry. So that fit me to a T. I knew nothing about the fashion industry. Um, And it really clicked. And I had a great experience there as a young man, which it turns out fit very well with private equity because I had about 50 licensees in North America. My job was to manage them, discipline them, interact with them. They were large companies, small companies, the whole gamut. So I was there, and uh, it turned out to be really good experience for what really goes on at private equity. Uh, the call of Wall Street was loud and strong in 1983. My timing turned out to be fantastic, and it was pure luck. Um, I you know, tried to get into Wall Street and wasn't doing very well. Finally got an introduction to Drexel Burnham. And uh, I Drexel was fantastic. They had a a knack for hiring people who didn't fit anywhere. And I was that person. Uh, I fit the group uh, profile really, really well. Uh, I had no experience whatsoever in investment banking of any kind. And they figured that with my experience as a lawyer, I had done some bankruptcy work as a young associate, that I would fit into the restructuring group. Fit meant that I was the second of two people. So uh, it was not a very big effort. And I wound up uh, with fantastic experience there. And then what happened was I wound up in, I was ready to go out on my own. And um, I had learned a lot. I had met a lot of people. I had seen a lot of uh, troubled companies. And I had the thought of, I can raise capital. I hoped I could raise capital to deploy it to, you know, fix these companies. I had been doing that as an advisor at Drexel for five years. And my thought was, well, why don't I eat some of my own cooking? And the timing turned out to be very good. I teamed up with two other guys, and uh, the thought was very simple. The prices, this was the first wave of private equity, really. And it was getting to the end of that first cycle where prices were extraordinarily high. Like, for example, what happened in 2006 and seven. They were really high prices. They were slivers of equity in the deal. 
And so these were reverse pyramids in terms of uh, the capital structure. And, you know, the sense was that a recession was coming. Nobody knew quite when. And it turns out that uh, our perception was right. The timing was very fortunate. So we raised our first institutional fund, um, was closed in November of 89. And basically, 1990 was there, set up for us, and it was a really significant crash. And we were able to deploy that fund very rapidly and very successfully. Um, How many deals has uh, JLL done? We probably averaged one and a half to two per year. I would say we're not the most prolific in terms of new deals. What we you can't count easily is the number of add-on deals. Right. And as I said in opening, um, we like the idea of buying and building. So we like to turn ourselves into a strategic buyer as rapidly as we possibly can. And if if I counted up all the add-on transactions, you know, it's well over a hundred. And how do you figure out who to invest in? Is it a certain size? Is it a certain sector? Well, we're a mid-market company. Our average equity investment in a deal is somewhere around 125 to 150 million. The money does not always go in at the outset. Sometimes we start small and continue to build. Um, we have a deal now that uh, has been a big success for us called uh, DPX. Used to be called Patheon. It's now a very large company, and we put uh, $500 million into that deal, both ourselves from our two funds and co-investors. So it can vary significantly depending on the opportunity set. And, I mean, are there any deals that kind of stand out for their unusualness or their craziness? Uh... Well, a couple of deals that stand out in my, my working career one, which was as an investment banker, which was I led the restructuring of Western Union. And that was a deal where we had to have a simultaneous restructuring of 13 different bond issues. And uh, the cast of characters that paraded through my office in attempting to do that deal was exciting. I mean, it was Richard Rainwater, Jay Pritzker, uh, Bennett LeBeau wound up being the, the winner. Uh, they were all fantastic, exciting people, and it was it was complicated. the The company, as everybody knows, was an iconic American company. So to watch that company decline was pretty sad, and um, uh, it gave it a certain importance to be dealing with this. And it was exciting because I got a call one day from Milken. He said, "The bonds of Western Union are trading very, very badly." They don't take my phone calls. Maybe you can go out there and get in and see if you can do a restructuring. I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. So I wound up getting through the door. Uh, The chairman at the time was a man named T. Roland Berner, who was a famous man. At the time, he was running also Curtis Wright. And he had actually clerked for Warren Berger in the Supreme Court. He was a very important person, actually, and a nice man. And he wouldn't see me during normal working hours, so I had to go in the back entrance on a Sunday morning to start our discussions out at Western Union. He wouldn't see you because he He, thought that— He wouldn't see me in normal working hours because he didn't want anybody to know he talked to anybody from Drexel (laughs) because Drexel was the big, dark cloud. Uh, Anyway, long and short of it is we won everybody over, and we led the restructuring. It took us two years. It was very exciting. So that was that, but that was not— as a principal, the other the deals that stand out in my mind at Drexel are really some healthcare deals. I mean, we have really 
done very well in healthcare. One company that we had and sold to Caremark was called Advanced PCS. We call it ADVP. This is a JLL. This is a JLL now. And, yep. and we became a very large pharmacy benefit manager. And when we sold ADVP, we had about $500 million of EBITDA. We sold it to Caremark, which at the time had about the same thing. And Caremark went on to be you know, one of the dominant forces in that industry. So we were very proud of that. Caremark, as you know, was then acquired by CVS. So that was very exciting. I want to talk a little bit, Paul, about, I mean, you're in a somewhat unique, not maybe not unique, but but certainly unusual position of having done this for a fairly long period of time and seen the immense growth in private equity that you alluded mm-hmm. to in the beginning. And I'm curious, how much harder is your job now than it was when you started because of all the competition? I would say it's much harder for... Uh, this is not meant to be uh, offensive, but for sort of a run-of-the-mill firm. It depends on how you think about the deals. Uh, in 1988, 1990, there were many fewer firms. Uh, you didn't even have Apollo. TPG was getting going. Carlyle was getting going. It was a whole different landscape, number one. Number two, there was much less capital in the industry, which also meant that there was going to be less competition. Number three... On the distress side, there was much less sophistication in terms of how to restructure a balance sheet. So that part has changed. More capital, uh, more experience, uh, number one. Number two, uh, you know, deal sizes, as, as you all know, have uh, exploded. The sizes of firms have exploded. Where we have managed, I think, uh, to keep our bearings uh, and remain... Uh, you know, uh, value-oriented is, I said in opening, we like to look for a fundamentally good company with a problem. And if there's a problem, it's a more difficult and more complicated sale. It tends to keep away some of the firms that, you know, don't really want to embrace those challenges. And consequently, we're not in a world without competition, but we are in a world with less competition. So, um, the big changes in private equity, if, if you're interested, I think, have been, number one, uh, relationships with LPs were much more intimate back in, you know, 1988, 89, 90. And over the past, you know, nearly 30 years, I think that uh, relationship-driven dynamic has dissipated considerably. Uh, part of that has been the the gatekeepers that are very important in the industry today were not particularly important in the industry then. Meaning who? When you say the important gatekeepers today, who do you have in mind? Hamilton Lane, Pathway, Cambridge Associates, those folks. And, uh, you know, they're retained by their clients to not only put money out, but they're retained by clients to assess people. And what's happened with all the metrics is things have gotten very IRR-driven, internal rate of return. This is annualized return. Annualized return. And, and it's, a, it's an important metric, but it shouldn't be as dominant as it is, because I think what you have is it, it forced a lot of financial engineering, people doing very quick recaps, of recapitalizations of their businesses, so they kept debt levels high rather than paying down debt over time as a way to send back money. Not all bad, it just depends on how much leverage is used. But also, people have exited some very good businesses very prematurely. And uh, that's an important point. 
And so you can, it's fine to say you've got a 25% IRR, but if you make only 1.5 times your money, you haven't made that much money. And when we started in the industry, I think it's fair to say that the smarter investors were more focused on what they call tonnage, multiples of money. Ultimately, you pay the bills with money, you meet your pension obligations with money, and you don't meet them with IRR. So somewhere in there, I think, is a healthy balance, and uh, I'm not sure we're there yet. Paul, do you have an example of a deal that you have worked on that just didn't go well? It just, for whatever reason, the thing didn't work out the way you planned it, and it turned out to be something that, you know, looking back on it, you regret. I do, actually. Um, we had we did a very good job creating the largest automotive car and truck wheel manufacturer in the world, a company called Hayes Lemmerts. And it was great. We were really doing very well. And um, we actually built the company too big for the quality of the management team. And it's a lesson that I learned, and I will not forget, that you know, every horse has a course. And so we had a group of guys who did a very good job building the business, but when we got to too large a size, the span of activities um, was uh, really you know, beyond their ability to digest it all. And as we grew and, and, and built the company, the, the leading management team was very insular. And consequently, you know, they didn't bring in new blood. They didn't focus on, you know, capital, human capital to run the business. They were just sort of thinking, we've got a great team. We're going to stay together. And, 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 and that hurt us. So that was a real bitter pill. Because and what happened? The company went bankrupt. And uh, we, we, had, we had a bad acquisition uh, compounded with a, you know, a downturn in the business at the time. But it was not an overleveraged business. It was, a, it was just got, you know, it got too big. And uh, so that was disappointing. Um, as you look at private equity today, this was sort of an issue when Mitt Romney ran for president, I remember. There were, there were discussions about sort of the pros and cons of private equity macro. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, as you look at the industry today, do you feel like we are at a point where, you know, it's, there's sort of a muddled answer to whether or not private equity in general promotes a net positive good for society. Okay, yeah, I've thought about it a lot. We'll go back to Mitt Romney. First of all, I thought it was really unfortunate that Mitt Romney couldn't defend what was a terrific career. I don't know why any person of his stature and ability couldn't do that, because he should be very proud of having created Bain, which is a great firm. It's got a great reputation. It's got a great record. It's worked on some great deals. And he was a part of that. He was the father of it. So why he didn't defend it better or at all, you know, is sort of a little bit curious. Uh, I think the debate on private equity is pretty much over. When you look at the last downturn and you say, okay, Kodak had 60,000 people working at Kodak. They're down to 4,000. They went bankrupt, okay? Kodak doesn't even exist anymore, okay? Well, that's nothing to be proud of. The automotive industry went completely bankrupt, which was not private equity. Uh, Putting aside Cerberus with Chrysler, it's sort of irrelevant. But, you know, General Motors, they shed probably a couple of hundred thousand jobs. Ford, you know, 
uh, did a great job with their own restructuring, uh, did not take government money, but they shed thousands of jobs. So the business number, the critique that started was private equity is going to slash and burn, private equity is going to get rid of all kinds of jobs. I don't think private equity in totality has come close to eliminating as many jobs as the major American corporations that screwed it up on their own. So there's that part of it. The other part of it is I think the, uh, the numbers do speak for themselves. You know, the overall returns in private equity have outpaced the S&P 500 significantly. That's good. Um, you know, people feel very benign and self-satisfied putting their money in the S&P 500. Well, put it in private equity and you'll do better. Uh, certainly the, the pension funds appreciate that. And, you know, throughout this whole period which is less today, but this whole period of criticism of private equity, the pension fund managers knew what they were doing. The high-quality university endowments, which like to think of themselves as, you know, ethical people, and they are, <laughs> okay, they were putting their money in private equity. So, you know, I don't think the, the argument held water when you analyze it. The last vestige of criticism or vestiges of criticism for private equity relate to what's the tax rate on the carried interest, okay? People disagree on that, okay? And are the fee structures too generous, okay? That's kind of what's left. But in terms of the overall benefit to society, um, I, think, I think there may well be a net positive but, you know, I frankly don't think about the industry in those grandiose terms because, you know, that's not the way Adam Smith would have thought about it either. You know, Adam Smith would think about private vice as public virtue. And what that term means is that we have a lot of people, millions of people scurrying around every day pursuing their own interests. And when it's done that way within the law, the collective benefit is good for society. You know, millions upon millions of billions of decisions every day by people. I don't think people sit around and debate whether a particular action to buy a pack of cigarettes or to buy a granola bar is, you know, an ethical act. But the benefit in its totality, you know, is, is positive for society. So that's sort of the way I think about private equity. David Carey, private equity reporter at Bloomberg, and Paul Levy, partner at JLL Partners. Thank you both for joining us. Very interesting. Thank you very much. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real time. You can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or any app you use to listen to podcasts. And please take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Very interested uh, in all your comments and what you think of this. And also follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. See you next week. We are proud of our new and growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, the financial markets, and the global economy. Odd Lots, a deep dive into the intersection of markets, economics, and finance with Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway. And Benchmark with Dan Moss, Tori Stilwell, and Aki Ito, an informative, jargon-free look at the inner workings of the global economy. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts for Android, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Terminal. Check them out and subscribe today.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.